Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a program like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. Thanks. Sometimes it all comes down to the golden rule, you know? The first responsibility is to not hurt other people, to recognize that we are a society that is diverse with lots of wonderful traditions and different ideas. And if we want to survive as a society, there needs to be room for people to believe different things and live different ways, but not harm each other. That's not a lesson we should have to keep learning. It's one we've kind of learned the hard way. We need to hold on to that uh, idea. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Chris. This is the 17th part of our in-depth conversation with Jennifer C. Pizer, a civil rights attorney at Lambda Legal, about how claims of religious liberty are being weaponized to justify discrimination against LGBTQ people. If you've missed any of the series, you can listen on our website, outcastingmedia.org. Outcaster Isha now continues her conversation with Jenny. Hi, Jenny. Thanks for joining us again on Outcasting. Very glad to do it. Last time we were talking about the role of the courts in protecting the rights of minorities and how the Supreme Court has been elevating religious rights over other rights and what that might mean for LGBTQ equality. But let's go off on a slight tangent for a moment. We've heard about bakers and florists who object to providing cakes or flowers for same-sex weddings. They make the argument that if they were to do those things, they'd be participating in same-sex marriages. We've talked about this at Outcasting. And to us, it seems that participating would mean that these bakers and florists go on the honeymoon and move in with the couple. Do you think that this participation idea holds water? It's quite a creative understanding of, of what it would mean to participate in a wedding. I think what's important here is that there has been a religious concept of complicity, that if a person accepts or is adjacent to somebody who is behaving in a way that is inconsistent with one's own religious views, that there's a duty to object to it or to separate yourself from that person. And if you don't shun them, you're accepting what they're doing. It's a very aggressive understanding, <laughs> and it's somewhat inconsistent with people living together in harmony in a diverse society. But that religious concept, of course, is protected. I mean, that's part of religious freedom, to believe as you want to believe and to worship as you want to worship according to your views and your beliefs. But if you're operating a business, then different rules apply. If you're in the public sphere, the public marketplace, and certainly also if you are doing a public function, and especially if you're doing it with public money, then other rules apply because we're the public marketplace is there for everyone. Now, this isn't a new argument. We saw a whole series of cases a number of years ago, 10, 20 years ago, where landlords objected to fair housing laws, arguing that if they were to rent an apartment, for example, to an unmarried different sex couple, then they believed themselves to be facilitating the sin if that couple were to be sharing a bedroom as an unmarried heterosexual couple and presumably having a sex life there in their own apartment, that the landlord would be making that possible by renting the apartment, even though there's a fair housing law that prohibits marital status discrimination. 
there were quite a few of those cases, and they were often brought by the same religious conservative Christian fundamentalist legal organizations that in more recent times have been litigating cases about marriage equality or various types of discrimination. And the courts were fairly consistent in those housing cases that the landlords are free to believe as they would like to believe and to manage their own lives as they would like to manage their own lives. But if they're acting as a landlord in a public marketplace and the fair housing law applies to them, then they have to follow the law. They were making the same type of complicity argument, but the courts recognized that there has to be a distinction between the things that the landlord is entitled to control and the independent actions and choices and freedom of a couple that has access to housing that's offered on the public marketplace. In more recent times, in part because the courts have become more conservative, we're seeing greater receptivity to this idea of complicity. And in fact, Justice Alito was the author of one of the famous or perhaps infamous cases in recent years brought by the chain of Hobby Lobby uh, craft stores. That's a family-owned business. They have thousands of employees, but it's a family-owned business that has conservative religious views. This was a legal challenge to part of the Affordable Care Act that required that large employers include in the health plan for their employees insurance for birth control, that that's a matter of basic health care. And so insurance plans should cover it. Otherwise, it involves uh, gender discrimination that Some workers have all their basic needs covered and other workers don't. The owners of of the Hobby Lobby stores objected on religious grounds, and Justice Alito wrote for the Supreme Court a decision that really changed the analysis in this area in many different ways. But one of the ways was to accept the idea that the business owner's religious objection to birth control would mean that if the health plan that they provide to their workers included insurance coverage for birth control, that they have a religious right to object to that, that their view that it would make them complicit in their employees' health choices should be respected as a legal matter. The legal rule before was that the independent actions of the workers in choosing their own health care and in consultation with their physician, that that was independent of the business owner. And so the business owner is free to believe that they're complicit, but as a legal matter, that's not their right. And they can't claim that their religious exercise rights are being burdened by the independent actions and decisions of their workers. So that's an example of Justice Alito's analysis that we don't know whether the Supreme Court, how much farther they would take that analysis. In the wedding cake case, that the court did decide, they decided it on other grounds. And to my view, they decided it on a factual basis that was a bit strained. It looks a little bit like a legal punt to avoid answering the difficult question. And now that the Supreme Court has a different composition, we might see a different analysis. I think most people would not think that the baker or the florist or the caterer is actually participating in the wedding. They may not even know the names (laughs) of the two people who are getting married, let alone the mothers-in-law and the fathers-in-law. You know, they're not guests. They're not really participating. They're providing goods or services. If the law changes to accept the idea that people 
can object in that way to other people's identities and lives, our civil rights laws may not have much meaning anymore. That's part of why this public argument is so important. Our civil rights laws have been profoundly important to the kind of society that we are today. If people can create their own exception, write their own free pass to not follow the laws based on religious belief, we may end up with a very different society. So it's really important that the outcasters are having these conversations. And I think you're right in your analysis. We need to keep our eyes on the Supreme Court and be concerned if the law goes in a different direction now. So this is just another way of saying what you said earlier, that someone else's right to swing their arms ends at my nose. That's exactly right. Each one of us has constitutionally protected freedoms. Those are really important. They do not include the right to harm other people. In addition to joining Justice Thomas's dissent in the Kim Davis case, Justice Alito also gave a speech in the fall of 2020 to the Federalist Society. We know a bit about his thinking about LGBTQ equality from the fact that he joined Justice Thomas's statement. So first, what is the Federalist Society and what does it do? So the Federalist Society is uh, made up of law students and lawyers and judges. It was formed a couple of decades ago with a mission to elevate conservative or reactionary views of the law, to reshape the law, pushing back against some of the most important civil rights and individual rights decisions that the federal courts issued in the mid-50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. The desegregation decisions, the women's rights decisions, the decisions protecting right of access to health care, to birth control, to abortion care. These incredibly important transformational decisions recognizing the rights of individuals and the rights of minority groups, basically enforcing constitutional rights that were always there, but over generations often were only enjoyed by straight white men with property and political power. The Federalist Society was organized explicitly to embrace and develop and push forward contrary legal views, different view of the Constitution, different rule about the relationship between the courts and Congress, that the courts should be more deferential to Congress, which tends to mean more deference to the political processes that respond to those with power. And the Federalist Society has been responsible in recent times with training and supporting applicants of people who would like to be federal judges, the people who have been appointed, who were nominated by President Trump and then confirmed sometimes very quickly by the Senate as guided by Mitch McConnell, most of them came out of the Federalist Society. And most of them were selected specifically because they share those views about the law and the role of the courts and the goal of rolling back many of these basic rights and having a different relationship between the courts and the Congress. Justice Alito gave this speech to the Federalist Society. Was this speech controversial or unusual, either what he said or the fact that he gave a speech like this at all? Well, justices do give public speeches, but this particular speech was unusual and it was controversial, not just that he talked about religious liberty in a very 
expansive way, consistent with what he has said in some of his court decisions. But because he he was very angry, the tone was was very angry and explicitly so. And he described religious people, conservative religious people, as being the victims of a society that was diminishing their rights and discriminating against them. And that is consistent with a political narrative that we see, unfortunately, quite a lot. And we see this idea that if people who want to discriminate, for example, against LGBT people for religious reasons, if they're told by a civil rights law that they're not allowed to do that, we are now seeing objections that that is seen as discrimination against them because they're required to treat other people equally. That if they're previous freedom to discriminate against us is now stopped because we have more civil rights laws than we had in the past. They're not free to do what they want to do, which they were able to do in the past. But what they want to do is to discriminate, is to hurt somebody else. And religious freedom in the past has not included a freedom to hurt other people. So the victim narrative that we hear is unfortunately quite common. And it's up to us to unpack that and to to point out that treating other people equally, that's what civil rights laws are for. Religious people have those same protections, but they're not being treated unfairly if they're required to follow the law that everybody has to follow. If they don't have special rights to ignore the law or to discriminate against other people, that's not discrimination. (laughs) That's just equality. And it was unusual, and it certainly was controversial, to hear Justice Alito, who's sworn an oath to uphold the Constitution, which includes the Equal Protection Guarantee, to hear him speaking with such passion and claiming victimhood on behalf of people who want the freedom to discriminate against other people. We sometimes laugh about this when we hear the claim of a, the, a war on Christmas, for example. I mean, there's no war on Christmas. But it's not funny when this narrative is a way of giving voice to a reactionary view that people should have the right to exclude other people, that people should have a constitutionally protected right to mistreat other people. That's actually quite dangerous, and it is part of our responsibility as an equality movement, as a liberation movement, to be clear that we're not trying to take away anybody else's rights. We just want the same rights, the same freedom that everybody is entitled to be included, and everybody has a responsibility to respect other people. We may be talking about a particular type of social change, but it is a vision of a society that does include everybody. This does harken back to language that Justice Kennedy included in the marriage equality decision, the Obergefell decision. Most of the decision was about who same-sex couples are and the fact that we have families and we want to marry for the same reasons that different sex couples want to marry, and we have children and they should be included within the legal system, but he included a couple paragraphs offering respect to people who have religious views against the freedom to marry for same-sex couples. He wanted to set a tone that was respectful and and included everybody, but that language has been latched onto by some folks who disagree with the Obergefell decision 
That includes Justice Thomas. It includes Justice Alito. That language has become a rallying cry for those who who would like the Supreme Court to overturn Obergefell. And that was some of the tone, some of the anger, some of the call to arms that you could hear in Justice Alito's speech. And that was unusual. It was controversial. It was kind of alarming. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. We're talking about what happens when people claim that their religious liberty entitles them to discriminate against LGBTQ people in ways that wouldn't be acceptable if the discrimination were against other minorities. Speaking with Outcaster Isha is our guest, Jenny Pizer, the Senior Counsel and Director of Law and Policy for Lambda Legal, the country's oldest and largest legal organization seeking full recognition of the civil rights of LGBT people and everyone living with HIV. What do you think respect for religious views looks like when those views oppose an aspect of LGBTQ equality, like marriage equality? Well, I think we can be explicit that we defend somebody's right to believe whatever they believe, but we also can engage in a conversation with them about our wish that they would look at the issue differently. People often do evolve in their understanding of other people and their understanding of how they think their religious views should guide their own lives. There's nothing new about this, and some people are open to that idea and some people aren't. But you can see some of the major faith traditions in our country today openly grappling with how to reconcile some traditional religious views with the reality that they're coming to understand in a new way. We see this with the Mormon church, the LDS church, that some of the elders are really openly grappling with the idea that their religious beliefs condemn same-sex couples, same-sex relationships, or LGBT people, and yet they have members of their family and members of their communities and their congregations that they know are good people, people that have something to teach them. Certainly the Mormon church changed its view on race relationships or whether African-Americans have the same religious and civil rights. The church teaching changed, if I remember correctly, in 1978 from saying that African-Americans don't have the same place in the church to deciding that that was mistaken and there was a new teaching that was received and the doctrine changed. So Those shifts in understanding of what a sacred text means and how a congregation should live and honor the traditions while also having new understandings, you know, the faith traditions really vary about how they approach that. There is, I think, an important role for us to play as members of our own families and communities to not give up on people. I mean, there are, you know, some people that are not interested in listening, but if we have open, respectful conversations with people that are that are willing to do that, then we can sometimes find a way to move forward. It, you know, it certainly takes time, but if we aren't willing to have those conversations, then the change is not so likely to happen. And one thing I would just add about that, the first responsibility is to make sure that you can be safe and have the support that you need for your own life. And when we provide that for each other first, then sometimes we can have more strength and support to be willing to have the conversations with other people that are willing to engage with us and and invite the change that we need to see.
So it almost seems that the bottom line is that everyone really needs to understand, very clearly, that idea that their freedoms end when exercising those freedoms harms other people. That's right. That's the bottom line. Sometimes it all comes down to the golden rule, you know, that uh, the first responsibility is to not hurt other people, to recognize that we are a society that is diverse with lots of wonderful traditions and different ideas. And if we want to survive as a society, then there needs to be room for people to believe different things and live different ways, but not harm each other. And that discrimination and exclusion is harmful. That's not a lesson we should have to keep learning. It's one we've kind of learned the hard way. We need to hold on to that idea. And Really, constitutional law can seem complicated, but it has some basic principles that are pretty easy to understand, and that's one of them. So do you think these two things, the Thomas Alito statement on the Obergefell case and Alito's speech to the Federalist Society, tell us anything about how the court may approach the balance between religious liberty and LGBTQ equality in the future? Well, I hope it doesn't, but I fear maybe it does. We're going to have to see. I think we know plenty about how those two justices look at these issues, and it seems unlikely that their views are going to evolve. We have three new members of the court, all three of whom, Justices Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, come from very, very conservative legal traditions, and two of them, Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, have been very active in Republican Party politics, which sometimes includes some reactionary ideas. But we know less about what they will do moving forward. And so I think we need to make our best arguments and do our best work and see what happens. I am worried about what may happen, but I think we have to just continue to do our work and see what they do. And if things do go in the direction that that some of their prior work indicates, then we're going to have to do more than just write legal briefs in order to have a Supreme Court that provides justice for all of us. What does it mean if the courts deny our equality? The courts can rule on what the Constitution means. Legislators can only create laws that may or may not be judged to be constitutional by the courts. If we get adverse judicial rulings on constitutional issues, where can we turn? Well, you're right. The courts have the last word about what the Constitution means, and the Constitution trumps a statute. So we have really two main ways to respond. If the court consistently interprets the Constitution in a way that permits discrimination and strikes down laws that are meant to protect us or or to guarantee us certain types of rights, the two approaches are, one, we can amend the Constitution or have a constitutional convention and amend the Constitution in quite a few ways. We also can expand the court, and the idea of expanding the court has received a lot of attention in recent times, specifically because many people believe that Mitch McConnell has led the Senate in a way that has created an unfairness. It's been very unprincipled, taken uh, Merrick Garland's seat and then, uh, then secured Amy Coney Barrett's seat in a way that's just not principled and fair. The Constitution does not require nine justices. It does not specify how many justices will be on the Supreme Court. And the number has fluctuated in the past. That's something that Congress can change and has changed in the past. 
And it's also true that in the past, roughly 100 years ago or so, um, when the Supreme Court was was deciding cases in a way that struck down a lot of legislation that had a lot of public support, and there was strong objection to how the court was behaving, there was a strong movement to add more justices to the court, to create balance again. There, there are mechanisms in our legal system to allow us to pursue or to reinstate balance when, when one of the branches, and in this case, the, the Supreme Court, is really out of balance. It's a little harder than what we can do directly in elections for members of Congress or, or for the presidency, but we do have the ability to do that. And because of what some people consider to be shenanigans in the Senate, and a concerted effort to skew the courts through the work of the Federalist Society, the Heritage Foundation, and some other political groups and legal groups. Um, you know, there's a sense that the system has been dramatically tilted in a direction that favors power and money and the interests of a of a wealthy white minority in a way that disfavors other people who should be entitled to equality that the answer to that would be to expand the court. And not, may, perhaps not just the Supreme Court, but perhaps the lower courts as well, because there have been many uh, judges appointed to the lower federal courts through a process that has selected overwhelmingly white, disproportionately male, ultra-conservative uh, nominees for the federal bench, many of whom do not have the sort of qualifications that previously would have been expected. There's different views about that, but there certainly are reasonable arguments for expanding the lower federal courts as well as the Supreme Court. So those arguments are happening. Those conversations are happening. We'll have to see what, what happens. But Chief Justice uh, Roberts is certainly aware that if the court is seen as being too out of step with where the American public is, there will be a public response. So stay tuned. Uh, it's actually very interesting, and some of this is playing out right before our eyes. Um, but these are decisions that affect uh, Americans in all aspects of our lives. And so um, whatever the court does, it's quite important. And if we don't like it, then there are things that we need to, you know, there's, there's work to be done, and everybody's invited to participate. What's to stop expansion of the courts whenever one party or another feels that things are out of balance? Well, that's a great question, and that's that's the counter-argument that is being made. Uh, and, and certainly there are people who disagree with some of the Supreme Court's decisions, including members of the Senate, who are saying that it's quite important that we not uh, make everything political in that way. Then there are other people that say, but it's been made political, and so the response to uh, an unbalanced political uh, system is to try to get things back in balance. There's two sides of that argument, and we'll have to see how it plays out. We've run out of time, Jenny, but we'll continue next time. Thanks. You're welcome. Thanks so much. That's it for this 17th part of our series on the conflict between equality for LGBTQ people and those who cite religious liberty to justify discriminating against us. If you've missed any part of this series, it's available on our website, outcastingmedia.org. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Isha, Rose, Jada, Justin, Lil, Charlotte, Tim, Sasha, and me, Chris. Our executive producer is Mark Sophus. 
Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good. More information is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting content, and the podcast link. You can also find Outcasting on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, and other major podcast sites. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school, or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. All right, go get a piece of paper. I'll say it one more time. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting, LGBTQ Resources. Thanks, and thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make your tax-deductible contribution today. We can't do programs like this without your support. To make your donation, please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.